the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow and co-manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program and the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the group shut down D.C.'s offer to pay a bounty for intel on the location of conservative Supreme Court justices. We'll talk with him about that uh, later this hour. We'll also talk with uh, Wallace Henley author of Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. Sort of an interesting combination, if you will. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, President Biden today met with Mexican President uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador at the White House, where he touted efforts to disrupt fentanyl and human trafficking while calling for help from the region. The uh, Mexican president was in D.C. after snubbing the Summit of the Americas back in June, during which nations signed a compact on migration and the U.S. issued a lengthy list of funding and visa commitments. Migration, including ways to solve the crisis at the southern border, was expected to be near the top of the agenda for the two men meeting today. Republicans had called on the president to raise the issue of fentanyl, which is deadly in tiny doses and primarily smuggled across the Mexican land border with rising seizures at the border and an increase in overdose deaths here in the United States. The president, in his remarks, said the U.S. is accelerating our efforts to disrupt the trafficking of fentanyl and other drugs that are literally killing fentanyl kills people, end quote. Well, the drug crisis comes with the border migrant crisis where massive numbers are hitting the border each month. More than 239,000 were encountered in May alone as numbers have continued to surge. A Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on abortion and the legal consequence of the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization blew up during a tense back and forth between Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican out of Missouri, and uh, Berkeley law professor Kiera Bridges when the senator questioned her characterization of who can get pregnant. Well, after Bridges referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy, well, the, the senator asked if she meant women. When the professor stated that some women cannot get pregnant and that some transgender men and non-binary people can, Hawley questioned whether abortion is really a women's right issue at all, as it has historically been presented. Well, this led the professor to accuse Hawley of creating a dangerous situation with his question, because you're not supposed to ask questions that point out the absurdity of what's passing for knowledge these days. I want to recognize that your line of questioning is transphobic. So if you raise a genuine question about who's whom and what uh, we should call the issues of the day. She went on to say, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing them. The question was, is it just women uh, who get pregnant? And the answer, of course, is yes. Now, there are some um, uh, women who choose to live as men, but they're still women. Their biology is still female. So that doesn't matter anymore. 
She teaches courses on family law as well as reproductive rights and justice, and it doesn't matter anymore. Wow, you're saying that I'm uh, opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the only folks who can have pregnancies, the senator asked. Well, the um, professor responded by stating that one in five transgender people have attempted to commit suicide, which is not relevant to the question. Because of my line of questioning, Holly shot back. So we can't talk about it. Bridges said Holly was causing the problem by denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. The Republican senator questioned the idea that he was denying that trans people exist by asking a question about women getting pregnant. Bridges then offered Holly a test. Do you believe that men can get pregnant? She asked. No, I don't think men can get pregnant, Holly replied, leading Bridges to state that means he denies the existence of trans people. And that leads to violence, Holly asked incredulously. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you or are they just treated like this? where they're told that they're opening up people to violence by questioning. Bridges said that she and her students have a good time in her law school class and suggested Hawley come see for her himself. Uh, you, uh, you should join. You might learn a lot, the professor said. Wow, I would learn a lot. I've learned a lot just from this exchange, the senator said. Well, the senator then commented on Twitter that the conversation summed up Democrats' position The Democrats say that they really think men can get pregnant. And if you disagree, you are transphobic and responsible for violence. He tweeted, well, of course, biological males cannot get pregnant, but women who choose to live as males and even take male hormones, despite the fact that every cell in their body carries the gene that makes them either male or female, It's just an absurd situation we find ourselves in. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization will update its gender guidance to reflect its belief that gender goes beyond non-binary. The organization announced the World Health Organization, or WHO, has an existing gender mainstreaming manual, which argues that there are many genders existing on a spectrum from male to female. The organization now says that does not go far enough, however. The upgrade guidance Uh, We'll focus on highlighting and expanding on the concept of intersectionality, which looks at how gender power dynamics interact with other hierarchies of privilege or disadvantage, resulting in inequality and differential health outcomes for different people. The WHO website reads at the time of reporting. The update uh, will also emphasize going beyond non-binary approaches to gender and health to recognize gender and sexual diversity or the concepts that gender identity exists on a continuum and that sex is not limited to male or female. So we're going to have to rewrite the book of Genesis that clearly says he created the male and female. He apparently did not fully comprehend what he was what he was doing. Well, the Church of England, which heralded the appointment of its first female bishop in 2017, said it could no longer provide an official definition of a woman. Now, if you're thinking the world needs to go to the church to understand what the scripture teaches about male and female, well, not anymore. The Telegraph reported that the announcement came as a written response to a member from the General Synod, the denomination's legislative body, asking the question, what is the Church of England's definition of a woman? Which seems like it on its face, a very simple question, but not anymore. In response, the Reverend Robert Innes, the denomination's bishop in Europe, wrote, There is no official definition. Little editorial comment. Scripture is irrelevant on the subject. He goes on to write, which reflects the fact that until fairly recently, definitions of this kind were thought to be self-evident, as reflected 
in the marriage liturgy. They were thought to be self-evident. He referenced the uh, denomination's Living in Love and Faith Project, which aims to be a part of discerning a way forward for the Church of England in relation to matters of identity, sexuality, relationships, and marriage, according to its website. Citing what he described as the marriage complexities associated with gender identity, he said the project points to the need for additional care and thought to be given in understanding our commonalities and differences as people made in the image of God. Now, you might want to question whether or not we're made in the image of God, since the scripture makes that declaration, also declaring that we were made male and female. So if one doesn't hold true any longer, does the other? Is Imago Dei still to be embraced by the church? Raises some serious questions. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Zach Smith on shutdown DC's offer to pay $250 bounties for intel on Supreme Court justices who happen to be conservative when they're at a restaurant in the Washington, D.C. area. We'll talk about whether or not that's legal and what the ramifications might be. want to let you know that you can save big on Christian t- school tuitions now. All you have to do is go to kpdq.com. If you'd like to send your co- your uh, kids to a Christian school this fall but worried about the tuition, we can help. You can save up to 40% on tuition at two fine schools, Cornerstone Christian Academy and Grace Lutheran School. Availability is limited, so go to kpdq.com for all the important details. Well, the Biden administration put health care providers on notice on Monday that they have to provide stabilizing care for pregnant patients and perform an abortion if the mother's life is at risk, even when the procedure is illegal in the state where they practice. Now, the Department of Health and Human Services issued guidance to hospitals and doctors reminding them of their obligations to stabilize patients in emergency situations. Stabilize patients. Now, I'd be interested in a broader definition. Under the law, and I'm quoting, no matter where you live, women have the right to emergency care. Absolutely, including abortion care. Well, they don't have a constitutional right, and depending on the state laws, they may not have the right to abortion within that state. But that's a quote from Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Bacara uh, in a letter to health care providers. He said the administration expects providers to continue offering abortion services under those circumstances and stress that federal law preempts state abortion bans when abortions are needed for emergency care. So this is sort of um, uh, subject to interpretation. Protecting both patients and providers is a top priority, particularly in this moment, he went on to write. Healthcare must be between a patient and their doctor, not a politician. We will continue to leverage all available resources at HHS to make sure women can access the life-saving care they need. Interestingly, he, a politician, is suggesting that uh, this is a care that it should be between a doctor and not a politician, so the laws apparently do not apply. Now, if you broadly apply that to other services, you've got some real trouble on your hands. If, if you, by law, are prevented from engaging in certain procedures, abortion aside, uh, what this suggests is uh, you have an obligation to do what your patient wants regardless of the law. Now, if that's followed, as is being suggested here, that could raise some very interesting and troubling questions. In a burgeoning billionaire battle, Tesla CEO Elon Musk took to Twitter on Monday night to respond after former President Donald Trump criticized him after he signaled his intent to withdraw from purchasing Twitter for $44 billion. Well, after the former president publicly criticized Musk, and I won't quote what he called him, it's inappropriate and immature, 
At a rally in Anchorage, Alaska, Musk tweeted that he thinks it's time for Trump to hang up his hat and sail into the sunset. Well, in a series of tweets back and forth, Musk said he does not hate Trump, but that his days at the forefront of politics should be done. A Twitter user then asked Musk what issues he had with Trump's presidency, to which he replied, yeah, but uh, too much drama. Do you really want a bull in a china shop situation every single day? I have to say it was emotionally challenging to follow for those four years. Well, making a rather unique comparison, First Lady Jill Biden is uh, being slammed after saying Hispanics are like breakfast tacos. She's being excused because, well, she's just not like that. Now, if it had been a quote from someone on the conservative side, wouldn't really matter what she's like. The presumption would be this is insulting as it should. And the Hispanic community, particularly journalists, are calling the first lady on just that. Calling the decision inexplicable, a soft on crime DA's murder charge against a bodega worker in the self-defense stabbing is shocking, according to experts. Soft on crime New York City District Attorney Alvin Bragg's decision to charge a convenience store worker with murder for stabbing an ex-convict in self-defense is inexplicable and shocking. Jose Alba, 61, was arrested on a second-degree murder charge and initially held on $500,000 cash bail for the July 1st slaying of Austin Simon, 35, who had attacked him. It's all on video, by the way. The bail was reduced on Thursday to $50,000 bond, which his family has since posted after Alba spent nearly a week at Rikers Island. In a father's fight, a dad speaks out after being stopped from exposing pornographic books in schools. The school board said, well, we're aware of that, but the parents who were assembled there at that meeting may not have. Anyway, in a final act of honoring Shinzo Abe, mourners bid farewell to Japan's longest serving prime minister at his funeral after his assassination. Doing damage control, the White House has responded after a Parkland dad was kicked out of President Biden's gun speech. White House Press Secretary Karen Karine Jean-Pierre on Monday said President Biden agrees with the man who interrupted his gun control event earlier in the day that more needs to be done on the issue. Manuel Oliver, whose son Joaquim was murdered in Parkland, Florida, in a mass shooting in 2018, started shouting during the president's speech that was given on Monday to commemorate the passage of the bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Security escorted the father out, even as the president attempted to engage with him. Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, also said that Biden understands what Oliver is feeling. Biden having lost his wife and a daughter. Hashtag don't run Joe. The progressive group is flipping the script on President Joe Biden, vowing to oppose him running in 2024. A progressive group flipped the script on the president, expecting many allied groups of, and notable individuals to join them in launching a campaign against the president's anticipated 2024 reelection bid. Roots Action says that its plan for a hashtag don't run Joe campaign that it's set to launch in November 9th, 2022, the day following the midterm elections. We object to Biden running in 2024 because of his job performance as president. They are quoted as saying Roots Action co-founder Jeff Cohen speaking to Fox News Digital in an exclusive statement. In a case of fishy business, California spent more than $500 million of taxpayer cash on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. In a Soros takeover, another Spanish radio star has bolted before liberal group takes over a conservative station. Another, Dania Alexandrino, is the latest conservative radio Mambi star to walk away from the Miami-based Spanish-language station ahead of a planned takeover by a George Soros-linked liberal group. And they are on a campaign to take over a number of conservative 
uh, Spanish-speaking stations. Urging her to look in the mirror, a teacher's uh, union boss gets schooled for a tweet about politicized classrooms. Inflation fears persist as small business sentiment plunged to a 48-year low as rising prices plague owners. And in a case of education intimidation, two mothers write that our kids' school told us to cease and desist, but we're fighting back. Well, Twitter stock has dived as Elon Musk looks to pull out of the acquisition deal. The Wall Street Journal reports that Musk's effort to terminate his deal to buy Twitter, Inc., sends uh, uh, shares of the social media company tumbling as investors prepare for what is expected to be a messy courtroom battle. Twitter shares fell 6.7% to $34.35 shortly after the opening bell, putting shares on pace for their biggest drop in nearly two years. The move follows Mr. Musk's disclosure of two securities regulators Friday that he is seeking to abandon his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter and take it private, saying that the company hasn't provided the information he needs and they promised to assess the prevalence of fake or spam accounts. Twitter stock is uh, trading about 37% below the $54.20 a share price at which Mr. Musk agreed to buy the company in April, marking a stunning turnaround for what has been considered the buzziest deal of the year. Its shares also are trading below where they were in early April before Mr. Musk took a surprise 9% stake in the company, which officially kicked off his takeover attempt. Yahoo points out that with a $1 billion breakup fee online, traders are bracing for more chaos as Twitter takes Musk to court and Twitter will then be required to disclose information they declined to give Mr. Musk in this deal. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll hear from Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow and co manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program. Also, the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation will talk about shutdown D.C.'s offer to pay a bounty for intel on Supreme Court justices' locations if they happen to be on the conservative side. That's coming up later this hour. Well, former presidential advisor David Gergen, a political commentator who served under former presidents Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton, says... It's inappropriate to seek that office after you're 80 or in your 80s. The criticism is mounting. 79 and counting, the current president is on that list. The New York Times writes, just a year and a half into his first term, Mr. Biden is already more than a year older than Ronald Reagan was at the end of two terms. If he mounts another campaign in 2024, Mr. Biden would be asking the country to elect a leader who would be 86 at the end of his tenure, testing the outer boundaries of age and the presidency. Polls show many Americans consider Mr. Biden too old, and some Democratic strategists do uh, do not think he should run again. Questions about Mr. Biden's fitness have nonetheless taken a toll in his public standing. In a June survey by Harvard's Center for American Political Studies and Harris Poll, 64% of voters believe he was showing that he is too old to be president, including 60% of respondents 65 and older. Mr. Biden's public appearances have fueled that perception. His speeches can be flat and listless, I'm quoting. He sometimes loses his train of thought, has trouble summoning names or appears momentarily confused. More than once, he's promoted um, Vice President Kamala Harris, calling her President Harris. Mr. Biden, who overcame a childhood stutter, stumbles over words like kleptocracy, which I might stumble over as well. Rather interesting. This was not an issue four years or two years ago when he was running 
Um, and if his job approval ratings were higher, one wonders if the New York Times and others would be weighing in on the subject. There are some 84-year-olds who are perfectly capable of leading. It really um, depends on the individual. We'll see what happens in this now um, ongoing debate where the quiet parts are being said out loud. President Biden celebrates the bipartisan gun control bill and pushes for more with a call to ban so-called assault weapons. Give them an inch and they will take a mile. The Hill reports that the president on Monday capped off a celebration of a recently passed bipartisan gun safety law with a call to take further action, including a ban on assault weapons. The president spoke to a crowd of hundreds of lawmakers, advocates and relatives of gun violence victims on the South Lawn of the White House to mark the passage and signing of last month's bipartisan Safer Communities Act in the wake of a school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Now, public policy is important. Changed hearts maybe have more of an impact added to that equation. President Biden takes the first trip of his presidency to the Middle East. He will confront the a kaleidoscope of challenges when he travels to the Middle East this week, his first trip there since taking office. With the American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in the rearview mirror, the United States is reassessing its role in the region at a time when its focus has shifted to Europe and Asia. President Biden steers hard left, but progressives, they still want more, which may explain at least in part the uh, growing concern about his age. It's a convenient excuse to limit his terms. What's going on with Joe Biden? Why is the president who ran and was elected as a centrist Democrat supporting one left wing proposal after another? What's prompted the politician whose sensitivity to public opinion was finally honed for four decades to take one unpopular stand after another? Well, that's a question that's being asked. PJ Media attempts to answer it, saying the Biden has shown a remarkable ability to to abandon the uh, mantles of unifier and moderate and to govern as far uh, left as possible, running hard toward the green climate agenda, pushing astonishing spending packages, buying into radical policies on transgenderism, rebuking the Supreme Court for doing its job in overturning bad law and advocating for the federal takeover of elections to entrench the party's power are just a few of the examples of Biden-era leftism, unexpected by those who accepted his um, self-description as moderate. Military recruitment across all branches is suffering due to more young people becoming unwilling or ineligible to serve. Every branch of the U.S. military is struggling to meet its fiscal year 2022 recruiting goal, Say multiple U.S. military and defense officials and numbers obtained by NBC News show both a record low percentage of young Americans eligible to serve and an even tinier fraction willing to consider. An investigation reveals the Border Patrol did not whip migrants, but still recommends agents be punished due to media hysterics. No wonder trust in the media is at an all-time low. The Federalist reports nearly 10 months after corporate media and uh, Democrat conspiracy theorists flooded on uh, front pages, the White House press briefing room and Twitter with assertions that the Border Patrol agents whipped migrants. A U.S. Customs and Border Protection investigation found no evidence that the horseback unit used their reins to strike uh, at the influx of Haitians illegally crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. And in fact, it was the media's fake story that sparked an investigation in the first place. Some media grifters, such as MSNBC's Joy Reid, parroted those speculations as fact and suggested that whips, which uh, come from the slave era, slave slavery era, were part of the package that we issue to any sort of law enforcement or government sanctioned personnel. 
course, all of that is false. Other outlets, such as the New York Times, said the agents used the reins of their horses to strike at running migrants. The legacy paper tried to scrub that blatant lie from an article later when the photographer who took the viral photo said he never saw Border Patrol use their leather reins uh, to whip anyone. But even that didn't stop the president and his team from spreading the whipping lie as truth, nor did it stop the corrupt media from amplifying the White House's frenzy over the faux incident. And now these individuals will face some sort of sanction. Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Liu, they penned a letter to the U.S. Senate asking them to declare the justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, as liars. Well, historic composer Monty Norman, famed for writing James Bond theme, has passed away at age 94. And Hunter Biden's iCloud has been hacked. New images, videos and texts from the president's son have recently surfaced online depicting Joe Biden's son engaged in Uh, unflattering uh, activity and salacious activity, which I'm sure you'll hear more about than you care to. On the Chinese communist infiltration of Western business, Beijing uh, loves to welcome in Western businesses, but the welcome always comes with strings attached. Recently, those strings have become even more insidious than they already were. China's Security Regulatory Commission will now require foreign-owned businesses to create Communist Party cells for their Chinese operations. While initially it was assumed this rule, created in 2016, would apply only to Chinese-owned businesses, Beijing is now expanding the requirement to foreign-owned companies. For two years, Western companies investing heavily in China have dismissed stakeholder concerns about forced labor or gross human rights violations, arguing that their duty is to their shareholders. The Wall Street Journal noted, if Xi Jinping gets his way, these companies will answer not only to their shareholders, but to Communist Party officials. Dr. Jill Biden's breakfast tacos flub is gaining the ire of uh, Spanish-speaking journalists. The Mexican cartel drug traffickers were released on bail reform laws after the feds arrested them in New York City with $1.2 million in meth. President Biden extends protections to Venezuelans in the U.S. And a floating abortion clinic has been proposed in the Gulf of Mexico. Starbucks is closing 16 stores in Democrat cities over employee safety concerns. The pandemic response has emotionally wrecked our kids, according to The New York Times. Europe uh, braces for a gas nightmare as the pipeline from Russia shuts off. And the Sri Lankan president has confirmed his move to quit as protesters occupy his home. Vladimir Putin has expanded fast-track Russian citizenship to all of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Iran is set to deliver armed drones to Russia. The UN protects that India, or rather projects that India will surpass China in population next year. And on this day in history, A.D. 64, the Great Fire of Rome begins, consuming most of the city for about a week. 1940, the Democratic National Convention at Chicago Stadium nominates President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was monitoring the proceedings at the White House for an unprecedented third term in office earlier in the day. Eleanor Roosevelt speaks to the convention, becoming the first presidential spouse to address such a gathering. 1947, President Harry Truman signs a Presidential Succession Act, which places the Speaker of the House and the Senate President pro tempore next in line of the succession after the Vice President. 1969, U.S. Senator Edward Kennedy leaves a party at Chappaquiddick Island near Martha's Vineyard with Mary Jo Kopechny. Sometime later, Kennedy's car goes off a bridge into the water. Kennedy is unable to escape. 
I should say, is able to escape, but Kopechny drowns. The scandal would dog Kennedy the rest of his political life. 1985, the world gets its first look at the wreckage of the RMS Titanic resting on the ocean floor as video of the British luxury liner, which sank in 1912, was released by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. 1989, Rebecca Schaefer, 21, from the cast of TV sitcom My Sister Sam, is shot to death at her Los Angeles home by obsessed fan. 2009, the Taliban posts a video of an American soldier who'd gone missing June 3rd, 2009. It was Bo Bergdahl. He says he was scared he wouldn't be able to get home. And finally, in 2013, Detroit becomes the biggest U.S. city to file for bankruptcy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Zach Smith, legal fellow and co-manager on the Supreme Court, and the shutdown D.C.'s offer to pay for information about their whereabouts. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, Shutdown D.C. is a liberal advocacy group in Washington, D.C. On Friday, they offered to pay up to $250 to service industry workers in the district for every sighting of a Supreme Court justice who happens to be conservative and responsible for the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Well, here to talk with us about that, whether or not it's legal and maybe a bit of background, is Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow and co-manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program at the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. What we're seeing is the deconstruction of civil society, this being the latest of many examples. Can you tell us a bit about Shutdown D.C.? Is this a group that just started as a result of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade, or had they predated that decision? Well, thank you for having me on, Georgine, because yeah. this is such an important issue. Uh, look, we're seeing many groups like Shutdown D.C. popping up around the district, uh, you know, advocating uh, for protesting the uh, justices, uh, at, at protesting the Dobbs decision. And it's really just, you know, very troubling on a lot of, of uh, levels. You know, Shutdown D.C., uh, I'm not sure if they've been around for a long period of time, but they've certainly gained. Uh, much more notoriety, because as you were saying, they've offered a bounty, essentially, on Supreme Court justices to service workers. They're offering uh, one amount, $50, uh, if someone cites a justice out while they're eating or shopping or with their friends or family, and they'll pay another $200 to someone uh, if the justice is still there when protesters uh, sent by this group shut down D.C. arrive. And so this is very something. It's really is the erosion of civil society in a lot of ways. And, you know, there could be uh, potentially a criminal exposure, uh, as you as you mentioned earlier. Now, this is happening in the wake of one Supreme Court justice whose life has been threatened in his own residence. We know that the law requires that Supreme Court justices or federal judges in general um, are to be protected when they're in the process of deliberating a decision, as was the case with Associate Justice in the in the, um, the Roe versus Wade decision. What does the law say about protecting them from this kind of harassment, them and their family members, following uh, what um, one side would consider a controversial Supreme Court decision? Well, let me make clear, Georgie. You know, as a policy matter, we shouldn't want judges to be threatened or intimidated uh, in doing their jobs. They have to make tough legal decisions. They're not politicians. You know, they're not supposed to be influenced by outside considerations. And so, you know, 
picketing their their residents or even the court in many respects, you know, is not something you typically see or expect to see because they're not political actors. The other point I make is, you know, there is very real danger faced by judges and justices. There have been incidents where judges have been killed uh, in the line of duty because of decisions they made. Just recently, there was a judge in New Jersey. Her, her son was murdered. Mm-hmm. Her husband was shot uh, because of her work. And so judges and justices do face very real uh, dangers. And because of that, there are federal statutes in place uh, that specifically address threats or attempted threats. Uh, against judges and justices. And there are two that I think are are particularly relevant to this decision. There's 18 U.S.C. 1503, uh, which deals with, you know, attempts to threaten or intimidate uh, uh, judges or justices in the performance of their duty. And then there's 18 U.S.C. 1507, which specifically addresses what we've been seeing, uh, you know, for the past several weeks and months that deals with picketing or parading in front of justices' homes uh, with the intent, uh, you know, to interfere, obstruct, or impede uh, justice or with the intent to influence uh, a judge or justice in the discharge of his or her duty. And so there are laws on the books dealing with these types of situations, but what's really, uh, you know, frustrating and in many respects and baffling is why the Department Justice is not taking action to enforce these laws and to protect our Supreme Court justices. It's really troubling. Yeah, it is very troubling that the Department of Justice has failed to do just that, even when confronted specifically. I know with regard to pregnancy resource centers and churches that have been targeted with violence and vandalism, um, the statement was, we're, we're looking into that. We take it very seriously. But I haven't seen any action uh on that in particular. With regard to Supreme Court justices, one would imagine that this third branch of our government uh, would be protected vigorously, recognizing that this effort to intimidate and perhaps threaten Supreme Court justices uh, would have an impact on uh, future individuals who want to serve and certainly on future decision making uh, among these uh, these elite judges. Well, it's certainly something that I'm sure anyone, you know, any reasonable person who is, you know, going to be a potential nominee to the Supreme Court or really to any federal uh, judgeship, I'm certainly will be thinking about this. You know, the confirmation process is already incredibly toxic. We saw what happened to, you know, Clarence Thomas when he was nominated to the court. We saw what happened to Brett Kavanaugh when he was nominated. And to a lesser extent, you know, it was also you know, some aspersions and, you know, allegations were thrown against Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch and and the like. And so I think, you know, any person, uh, particularly someone who's of a conservative persuasion, uh, will probably have pause before serving their country in this capacity as a judge or a justice. That's not a good thing in and of itself. But again, what's really troubling, Georgine, is judges and justices, they're not politicians. They're not supposed to be swayed, uh, you know, about the outcomes of their decisions, because they're supposed to be deciding it based on what the law requires, the text of the Constitution, the text of the statute they're interpreting, not policy considerations. And so with that in mind, you know, what other purpose really could many of these protests have other than to try to intimidate the justices, get them to change their decisions, retaliate against them for their decisions? And I think that was particularly true, you know, in the interim when the Dobbs draft opinion, which overturned Roe versus Wade, uh, was leaked from the Supreme Court. And when the final decision was handed down, you know, many of the protesters showing up at the justices' homes were saying they were there to try to get the justices to change their minds. 
And so, again, that seems to be squarely within the conduct covered in these federal criminal statutes. Uh, And the question really becomes, where is Merrick Garland, the attorney general, and why is he not doing his job in enforcing these laws? Absolutely. We know that um, Shutdown D.C. says that they will pay uh, D.C. service industry workers using Venmo. Uh, Twitter has uh, said that uh, these shutdown DC's tweets are not in violation of Twitter's safety policies, even though they certainly could lead to threats of violence. Uh, who should be held accountable here? Uh, Venmo is has potentially or would potentially transfer money. Twitter is allowing messages that threaten or could threaten the life and safety of Supreme Court justices. Could they ultimately be held accountable? If the individuals directly involved shut down D.C., this sort of elusive group is not being held accountable. Well, it's certainly something that I'm sure authorities should be looking into. You know, even if they can't be criminally held accountable, they could potentially be held civilly accountable. But what's really shocking, uh, again, is the double standard that's applied in many of these cases. If you look at some of the tweets that uh, Twitter has been threatening or disparaging when they're coming from someone on the right, someone of a conservative persuasion versus what's coming from the left, I think Mm -hmm. it becomes clear there is a double standard uh, being applied. But as a practical matter, Georgie, I hope many of these groups like Shutdown D.C., I hope they do use Venmo to pay these service workers because the more of a paper trail you have, the more bank records, that sort of thing you have, the easier it is to prove a case if and when authorities ever decide uh, to step in. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind, the statute of limitations on these crimes is five years uh, from the date when they are committed. And so you could very well see, you know, future attorney general, future administration deciding to do their job and and hold people accountable if and when they break the law. One can only hope. Has um, Planned Parenthood, um, NARAL, Pro-Choice America and other uh, pro-abortion groups, have they weighed in on this uh, this practice, this invitation that's been extended by uh, uh, this organization? Well, I haven't seen anything directly. That doesn't mean uh, they necessarily have it in some capacity. I just haven't seen any. But what I will say is that they're not helping the rhetoric. You know, the rhetoric surrounding this issue is very divisive. Uh, It's very heated right now. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about what a lot of these decisions do, particularly the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe and Casey. You know, I think it's important to realize The Dobbs decision did not immediately ban or criminalize all abortion in the United States. What the Dobbs decision did is said Roe was a very bad decision constitutionally, which, by the way, is something even those on the left, left-leaning legal scholars, have agreed with. And so what it did, it returned the issue back to the people, back to their elected representatives in state legislatures, which is where it resided for all of our nation's history until 1973 when nine unelected justices decided to create this right out of whole cloth. And so I think the more people understand what exactly happened, what exactly these decisions mean, and really cut through a lot of the noise and the the misinformation that's out there about it, you know, the better we'll be as a society. And hopefully, you know, the, the less people will be inclined, you know, to really engage in some of these very problematic, very radical actions uh, that at the end of the day undermine, you know, the ability of judges and justices to, to do their jobs. Zach Smith, thank you so much for talking with us. 
Of course. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Again, Zach Smith is legal fellow and co-manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program, the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. By the way, Planned Parenthood, NARAL Pro-Choice America, and the Liberate Abortion Campaign released a statement in late June saying that they reject any and all threats of violence that come from the decision, adding that they do not speak for us, our supporters, our communities, or our movement. Note, acts of violence, certainly not intimidation or uh, the kind of um, of bounty and hounding that we're uh, currently talking about. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Every once in a while, I'll read a book or at least uh, try to get through a book that I think is written for our time. And as this uh, book that we're going to be talking about, I think is a must read for those of us who want to perhaps gain some perspective on our times. The book is titled Two Men from Babylon. It's written by my guest, Wallace Henley. And the question is, did God make or permit Donald Trump to become president? Well, in this release, pastor and former Nixon White House aide Wallace Henley, he explores the very possibility that that could be true. The book is titled Two Men from Babylon, and he brings into perspective how God uses unlikely leaders to bring about his plans and his purposes. He tears the camouflage off of our times, and he looks intently at what's going on in our crazy era on the eve of a year of destiny. Well, the heart of the book is found in two scripture passages, one in the Old Testament, the other in the New. And he makes the point that God has grand purposes for our time and history. And the question uh, that is also addressed is, what does um, what roles do King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, as uh, he was a ruler of Babylon, and Donald J. Trump, who is the 45th president of the United States, play in God's kingdom and his plans? I just love the book and want to encourage you to uh, to consider reading it. My guest, uh, Wallace Henley, was born two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. After serving as a White House aide during the Nixon administration, he went on to become an award-winning journalist for the Birmingham News in Alabama. He's the author of more than 20 books, including God and Churchill, with uh, Jonathan Sandys, Winston Churchill's great-grandson. He has led leadership conferences around the globe and joins us today to talk about his latest book, Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. Thank you so much for joining us. It is a great joy. Thank you for having me. This really is a fascinating book because it's not about who you should pull the lever for on Election Day. It's not about whether or not Donald Trump should be the president or if he is a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar. It really is much more about the Lord of History to help us gain understanding of our times as we are entering into another strategic season that all of us will have the opportunity to play a role in. What was your motivation in um, putting these two individuals in a single book uh, and helping us understand how God moves in history. Well, in, in when I was in my late 20s, 29 years old to be exact, I became a member of the White House staff and very impressionable and very interested in what I was seeing. I became uh, uh, sort of uh, occupied with the ideas about how nations work and how the leaders of nations fit into a grander pattern of history. And at that time, I was going through something of a theological crisis. I had done. Uh, become very liberal in my theology, wasn't sure what I believed about the Bible. Uh, I was invited to a prayer group that met in the White House every Thursday morning, a staff prayer group. And by the grace of God, through that prayer group, I was led back to the Lord and back to a very solid view of Scripture. And I began to see that there is a pattern in history. 
through the years, I, I, I continued to pursue this idea. And finally, I landed on this tremendous passage called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about the fact that all of history is about the proclamation of the kingdom of God and the coming of his kingdom. And all the leaders of nations are placed in, in power either by his permissive will or his intentional will. And I began to look at Trump and uh, all the rest in that perspective. You make a comparison uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. You're not suggesting Donald Trump is a modern Nebuchadnezzar, but you make comparison between uh, the role that each has played in their time. Can you give us a kind of a brief overview? Because I think this is so significant and helps us to perhaps look at events in our day with a much broader perspective on what God is doing historically, as well as looking uh, toward the future. Well, as I meditated more and studied more about the nature of nations, I begin to see this, this Babylon meme, if you will, uh, that, was, that was all over the scripture. Uh, from the Tower of Babel, uh, the beginning, all the way out to the book of Revelation, where it's, where it's the Babylonian uh, world system that is defying God. In fact, uh, I define it based on the scripture, Babylon, as the world system organized without and in defiance of God. And I begin to see that Nebuchadnezzar, in his rule in the time of Daniel, was sort of an archetypal, archetypical uh, type of ruler of that kind of world. Uh, I begin to see that other secular leaders across time have followed that same pattern and that God is raising them up or by his permissive will, God is allowing them to come into power uh, to fulfill the purposes of the kingdom. So Jesus one day tells his disciples, they're walking by the temple and the disciples look and see all the stones of the temple uh, beside them. They're massive. And, and, and they say to him, wow, look at the size of these stones. And Jesus says, Guys, the day is coming when not one of these stones will be left upon another. And, of course, he was speaking very directly about what would come about 40 years in the future in 70 A.D. when the Romans came and destroyed that temple. But he was talking in a larger sense, as we see in Matthew 24, of, of the world system and the great stones that hold up the world system being scattered about in chaos and disarray. And the disciples are stunned by this. And Jesus says, in the midst of all this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all of the world as a witness to all of the ethnes, that's the Greek word, all of the people groups, and then the end, not the termination, but the telos. Telos means purpose. The purpose of everything will come. So all the leaders across history, because nations are so important in the plan of God, all the leaders are across history are ruling either by God's direct lifting them up into power or God permitting them to come into power. That was true of Nebuchadnezzar. It's true of Trump. You um, contrast the kind of leader Nebuchadnezzar was, his worldview, and that of uh, Donald Trump. Again, you're not saying he's the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar, but the, the type of leader that each of them was in their time. And what, what can we learn from Nebuchadnezzar that will help us better understand our current president, Donald Trump? Well, the great hope that I would have regarding Nebuchadnezzar is that Nebuchadnezzar uh, went through a period of, of insanity, if you will, uh, when he was driven out into the wilderness and he spent years in the wilderness eating what the animals ate. 
And in that experience, he came to a very dramatic encounter with Daniel's God. Uh, Daniel was, along with other young friends, were, were young uh, men from Judah who had been brought there in exile, and, and they were tempted at the king's table, but they refused to break the laws that they knew from Israel, the laws of God. And they witnessed, but Nebuchadnezzar himself resisted any move of God until he was driven out into the wilderness. Donald Trump is is something of a comparison to Nebuchadnezzar, many of, in, especially in style. Many compare him to Cyrus in terms of policy, but in terms of style, he's very much like Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe he's there by the permissive will of God. We have we have become a very coarse nation. And he, his coarseness is kind of a reflection of what the nation itself has become. Uh, policy-wise, uh, certainly I'm pro-life, and policy-wise, uh, I, I thank God for many of the things he's doing. But at the same time, I have to note that, that there's some hope that God could use a Nebuchadnezzar in the past, and therefore there should be hope now that God can use this man who in, in style— and character, not a, not a, as you as you point out, not a reincarnation, but in style and character, someone something like Nebuchadnezzar was in his time. So I want to hear that great declaration, and I believe it will come. Nebuchadnezzar's declaration was the God of Daniel is God, and I'm looking forward to a, a very clear announcement from from President Trump. I mean, he plays around the edges of it, but I'm looking forward to a very clear announcement that the God of the Bible, he is the God who is the ruler of all. It is his kingdom that we serve. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Wallace Henley. His book, Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. The bulk of the book is about the Lord of History and how we might better understand his hand at work uh, in our time as we look back and as we anticipate the future. We'll take a quick break, but we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Wallace Henley. He's the author of Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. It is a fascinating book that helps us to apply an eternal and biblical perspective on events that have occurred and may occur in the days ahead. Uh, particularly in this country. One of the things you write about is the what you call the grand enigma, part of what has made uh, Donald Trump such a, um, uh, a mystery is how on earth someone of his uh, nature managed to succeed where everyone uh, who was observing would have suggested that would have been impossible. You write the maddening to some mystery remain. What power made Donald Trump the president of the United States of America? That's exactly right. That power can only be understood in the in the context of the great overarching purpose of history that we talked about in the first segment. All of history is about the coming of Christ's kingdom and the preparation of nations uh, for the coming of that kingdom. And by the way, that kingdom um, is the kingdom of the Bible says Romans fourteen seventeen of righteousness, which also means justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think I think the unrest that we're seeing in our country now mm. is the fact that that people have have lost vision for that kind of beautiful kingdom that is in the future and and human beings are trying to establish the kingdom for themselves and all of us and I found this when I was on the White House staff 
how people could almost worship politics and place all of their hope and political powers to bring about the kingdom. And so we have all these conflicting forces who are driven with this hunger of the human being. We are wired for God's kingdom. We are wired for it. And if we reject him and if we reject the kingdom, then we try to bring it into being ourselves through our conflict or, or however. My, my hope would be that someone like Donald Trump, who is known as such a man of the world, if you will, and this yes. would be true of Nebuchadnezzar, that he would come to that place that he would, that he would just so clearly, and, and he's so close to making these kinds of statements, embrace the idea of God's kingdom. So I have, I have hope in the midst of all of our despair that God is working in the midst of this to prepare us for the future. Absolutely. You write of some of the uh, individuals who are well-known within the evangelical community. How could she, they believe God chose Trump as president? Why would such noted leaders put their reputation on the line for a man like Trump? Could it be that God really did select or at least permit Donald Trump to occupy the Oval Office in this critical season of the United States? If God, who is perfect in his holy character, chose Trump, whose character is regarded by many as flawed, to put it generously, why would the Lord of history grant him authority? To answer that question, you turn to the Bible, and there are two scripture passages at the heart of your book. Can you tell us what those passages are and where we begin in this exploration of the Lord of history? Yes, in Daniel chapter 2, God tells Daniel explicitly, right in the middle of all this, this mess with Nebuchadnezzar, that it is God who changes the times and the seasons, who raises up and puts down the kings or the leaders, the queens, whoever it may, may be, Queen Esther, certainly, whoever it may be, it is God who does this. There are, there are patterns in history. Uh, Mark Twain is, is uh, credited with saying that time may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so all across history, we can establish, we can see these patterns. And, and time is not merely linear. Uh, time right. is linear cyclical. That is, there are chirotic events that are spinning across time. And these events are all in the context of God's plan on that linear plane of time. It's like a train moving down a track, and it picks up speed. So that's the first passage. God is raising up leaders, and we see these same types all across history, either by God's intentional will or his permissive will. And then the second passage is in Matthew chapter 24, uh, and that's where Jesus talks about the, the, the purpose of history and the fact that, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all of the world as a witness to all of the nations. And so we see in that, we, we hook these two concepts up, and we understand that nations within historical time, chronos time, as the Greeks might put it, nations are crucibles for the realization, for the pouring out of the revelation of God's will, and, and the leaders of those nations, either positively or negatively, uh, help prepare the way for that. Sometimes those leaders are, are, are instruments of God's judgments on a nation, and sometimes those leaders bring direct blessing, as Esther did when she rose to power. That's how it works, I think. You write about the a deep history, and you write the important thinkers since at least the golden age of Greece have seen patterns in events, personalities, and nations that have made them think there is much more going on in time than we realize. Talk a bit about deep history and how God is at work in ways and at times when perhaps we don't take notice if we're focused on the, the, the moment and the features of our particular experience alone. 
Well, we can we can look uh, we can see that most clearly in the nation Israel, which is somewhat prototypical of God's interactions with nations, and we see a pattern in Israel. It begins with a ratification, what I call a ratification, when the important uh, uh, influencers in the culture all endorse the idea. The consensus is God is God, God is on His throne, and He is the ruler of our nation. And this is a time of tremendous blessing when this consensus is in place. But then comes a time of the relapse of memory. And I'm alliterating this so I can remember it. Relapse of memory. They forget God. And we see this in the book of Judges when the Bible says that the generation that knew Joshua dies away and they they no longer knew Joshua's God. And when that, that relapse of memory comes on the nation, men forget God. People forget God, as an old peasant told Solzhenitsyn about Russia when Solzhenitsyn said, what's gone wrong with us? And the old man said, men have forgotten God. People have forgotten God. The next stage is the stage of, of, uh, of rebellion, when, when the consensus around God evaporates and when forgetfulness of God and his work in our midst is, is, is present, we forget that, then comes rebellion. And following rebellion comes the consequence of rebellion, which is the refiner's fire, and the nation experiences great turmoil. We're, America right now is in a refiner's fire uh, period, and we need to open our eyes to that. The good news is that, that some, the next stage is remembrance. People in the culture begin to ask the question, Wait a minute. What what have we lost? What did we leave behind? What did we forget? And the prophetic voice rises up in the midst of that time of remembrance, calling people back to to God and the roots in God. The prophets are persecuted, but nevertheless they continue speaking. And following that age of of remembrance, when people begin to remember God again, next comes a stage of repentance, when when significant. Uh, numbers of, of people within the nation begin to turn back to God. And God is always looking for a remnant. I have a whole chapter in the book about the remnant. And God is always looking for the remnant. And it is the remnant that repents and begins to move back to God. And that unleashes a blessing for the whole nation in the form of the next stage, which is revival. And I'm also seeing signs of that, uh, all three of those things in, in what we're moving through right now. And then following the revival, comes another era of ratification when the consensus around God is reestablished. And the Bible says, he has, has a wonderful way of putting it, the Holy Spirit does in the Bible, um, the nation had rest for 40 years. The nation had rest for a generation. And then the cycle begins all over again. We're talking about the book, Two Men from Babylon. In it, he writes, to achieve his purposes, the Lord of history will use unlikely, complex, and powerful leaders like Nebuchadnezzar and Donald Trump the two men from Babylon. We're going to take a quick break. And if you can stay with us for one more segment, I'd like to talk about the Lord of history in which you address the question, does God have a plan for history and the historic roles of leaders, whether a Nebuchadnezzar or Donald Trump? You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to continue my conversation with uh, Wallace Henley. His book is Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. It's one of the best I've read during this season, and I would highly recommend it for you as well to help make sense of events 
uh, of these last few years and as we anticipate events uh, moving forward. In your chapter titled The Lord of History, you ask the question, does God have a plan for history and the historic roles of leaders, whether a Nebuchadnezzar or a Donald Trump? You write that President Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II thought so. Now, this is one of the major uh, questions that we have in our age. For people who supported Donald uh, Trump's political aspirations and those who oppose them vehemently, there's a, a, a challenge within the Christian community. How could you support Donald Trump or how could you not support him given his position on certain issues? There, there are other questions to be uh, considered in the midst of all of this, and that really is what your book, Two Men from Babylon, is all about. Does God have a purpose, even in uh, selecting or allowing someone to, uh, to serve with authority who doesn't reflect his character? in his conduct. Yes, God, God has a massive plan for history. And I, I would have written the same book had Hillary Clinton been elected president in 2016, that God had either permitted or directly raised her up as our president for some purpose. But, but the greater issue is what is that purpose? What is it all about? I love to illustrate the will of God like this. Imagine the Nile River, one of the most uh, spectacular rivers I've ever seen. It rises down in Central Africa, and it moves steadily up, always flowing toward the Mediterranean Sea. That The course of that river is not going to be turned back. Everything in that river is ultimately going to spill into the Mediterranean if it doesn't get out of the river first. It's going to the Mediterranean. That is set. That is done. Uh, there's no negotiation there. The same thing tr is true with the intentional will of God. The whole of this world and history is moving toward a grand encounter with God at the end of chronos or finite time. There's no turning that back. Nations, leaders, everybody. But God is love. And if God is love, then God also permits us freedom. I would have loved to have locked up my kids in a closet when they turned about 14 to save them from disaster. <laughs> but I loved them. I was, I was raising them to be free. And so God has made us free. Here's what that means. We are in the river, and we're not going to get out of the river. We're headed toward the Mediterranean judgment or the coming of God's kingdom. We're headed toward that. But in the river, there are whirlpools. There are tributaries. There's all kinds of ways that people can go against that flow on very small and temporary uh, junkets. But eventually, everything is coming back to that, to that flow. And so this is true with history. There's no way to turn from the encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of time, end of chronos time. That's happening. But down here in the river right now, we can make choices against God's will. And we can, we can row against that current, or we can take a tributary. And, and, and we see that happening all the time in the choices that people make and the choices that nations make. God intends for every nation, and again, this is Matthew 24, God intends for every nation to be a crucible of his kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy and justice, uh, joy in the Holy Spirit. That's God's intentional will. We get in our little boats and we row against it. And sometimes we elect the wrong people. And God permits us to do that because of God's commitment to our freedom, which stems out of his love. But eventually, God is always going to return it 
to that same course, that same course, that same course. And this is where both the bad news and the good news applies. <laughs> bad news that we go against the current. Good news is, or it may be bad news if we reject God, that ultimately everything is going to wind, wind up at his throne. Which uh, I think helps us to respond to however the next election um, turns out, keeping that broader picture in mind. You write about um, where the age of Trump might fit into history. How might we interpret uh, the age of Trump, as, as you put it, in this moment in history? I think many historians will look back and say it, there was a there was a build up to chaos, and that build up to chaos and and coarseness and and turning away from God. Certainly, uh, what we've seen uh, is 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 a is a vast disaster in many ways. I look at numbers, uh, I, I and I think of numbers as, as as a deciding factor for electing the president. And one of the numbers that I look at is sixty million. Sixty million is the number of babies who've died in abortion chambers in the United mm. States since Roe v. Wade. And so I say, look, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not voting for Biden or Trump. I'm voting for life. I'm voting for, oh, by the way, I'm also in, in, uh, voting for employment, for, for the ability of people to work and for minorities to work. I'm, I'm voting for that. And I look at Trump's numbers. I look at the fact that, that uh, 5 million new jobs were added uh, before all this coronavirus stuff began to come down on us. And, and 4.5 million jobs for, for, for minorities. I'm looking at things like that and issues like that. So the president who, who does the most for life and the president who does most for, for encouraging work and improves the ability of people to live in prosperity and happiness, that's, that's the way I want to vote. And so those are the trends that, that I look for as, as a Christian voter. Mm. You uh, write about the strategic role of the church uh, related to politics. As we are approaching another election year, it threatens to divide the church. Um, but how should we um, view the strategic role that the church is to play during this season? The health of a nation is in direct proportion to the health of the church within a nation. The health of a nation is in direct proportion to the health of the church in the nation. And by church, I mean whatever religious or spiritual or ultimacy entity is present in that culture. So if you have a toxic religion, then you will have a toxic nation. If you have a, a healthy, strong, vibrant faith that is aligned with biblical truth, then you're going to have a nation of blessing. And so let's just think for a moment about the formation of this nation. When this nation was formed, it was formed in the context of a biblical worldview. And that's pretty inarguable. People will attempt to do that, but they, but they can't. I would point people, for example, to Christianity and the Constitution by John Eidsmo and many other books. Dr. Mark uh, Taylor has written a very important recent book on this topic. And one of the things that was present in that, in that founding worldview was the sense of God's transcendence and the idea coming arising from the Old Testament and those pr colonial era preachers preached a lot from the Old Testament and their sermons went on an hour, sometimes two hours. So the founders were under this, this continual preaching of judgment and accountability and the transcendent holiness of God. So guess what comes into the Constitution? Our rights are given to us by our creator, not by the state. And the state is accountable, accountable to God through the people. Uh, 
All of these ideas come in. And then comes a very important seed in the preamble. All men, all human beings are created, um, are, are, are equal. Uh, there's, there's equal dignity, equal rights, and all of these receive the, the, the gifts that have come from the Creator. Now, the seed that was planted in that was the seed that would destroy slavery. And it did uh, uh, destroy slavery, ultimately. And so all of these elements were present in our nation. America also was something of a covenant nation. Any, any nation, this is not just America, but any nation that appeals to God for its foundations is, in a sense, a, a covenant nation. Therefore, the church in the culture is that remnant, that, that, that group, hopefully not, to, not a small remnant, but, but a growing remnant of people who embrace those values, those principles under the lordship of Christ that make the nation a great nation and restores us to those values and principles. So the church has got to be in the act. It's got to be right in the middle of it. I left the White House as a young man uh, after three years there. I left the White House with a conviction after observing government at, at the highest levels that the most important entity, the most important, most potent um, entity in this world is the church in yeah. any nation. That's right. Well, the book is Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. Wallace Henley is the author. It's published by Thomas Nelson, and I would recommend this book between now and Election Day as we're pondering the uh, the state of our nation and the course that we might uh, see in the future. This is just a, a great book. Thank you so much for writing it and for taking the time to talk with us here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Georgine. It's my joy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I'm grateful that the scriptures don't mince words when it comes to what followers of Jesus might face in terms of persecution. I'm grateful for organizations that exist today that minister to those who suffer, uh, displacement, homelessness, and persecution because of their Christian faith. And by the way, there are thir- 360 million of them. And I'm grateful that they provide us with information that can inform our prayers as we lift up the uh, body of Christ around the world. Uh, Layla Gilbert um, wrote an op-ed in the Christian um, the Christian publication, and she writes that across today's increasingly violent world, Christians who are persecuted for their faith can be numbered in the hundreds of millions. Most of them live in poverty and constant uncertainty, yet they continue to pray, to praise, and openly worship. Now, it challenges me and my faith when I am inconvenienced and uh, might be a little more reluctant to pray, to praise, and to openly worship. And perhaps you'll be challenged as well, that we won't be quite as wimpy as we are here in America. And I'm speaking generally, you might be the exception. She writes that far too many are subjected to horrifying scenarios. There are vicious abuses of uh, converts to Christianity in Iran, ongoing massacres in Nigeria, and violent assaults on Afghan Christian believers. In fact, on the 5th of July, International Christian Concern exposed their ominously titled 2022 Persecutors of the Year Awards, awards, and the three worst persecutors they um, have awarded are, in fact, Iran, Nigeria, and Afghanistan, but those are hardly the only ones. Open Doors annually publishes a watch, uh, world watch list. It focuses on the world's 50 worst persecuted countries, and I would encourage you to subscribe to that watch list. It, it's very helpful 
again, as a follower of Jesus, to put things into perspective and to inform our prayers. You can go to Open Doors website for more information. They identify these countries in the order of their brutality. And at the time of the... uh, uh, 2022 release, over 360 million global Christians were experiencing high levels of persecution and discrimination. And although Christians aren't the only people of faith that suffer for their beliefs, they are unquestionably the most endangered. Tens of thousands have died in recent years, and innumerable believers have fled their impossibly dangerous hometowns and even their countries of origin. According to a sobering Open Doors report published in June of this year titled Church on the Run, They have been forcibly displaced from their homes because of their religious identity, either as a sole or contributory factor. The displacement of Christians from their homes and communities is a deliberate strategy of religious persecution designed to erase the presence of Christianity from regions where persecution is most intense. Recent figures demonstrate the scale of global displacement. There are currently a record 100 million people forcibly displaced. The report explains that Christians are more likely to be forced out of their homes and countries, more likely to experience psychological and physical violence once displaced on account of their religious identity and activity. Their protection, uh, their needs uh, often are poorly understood and even willfully ignored. There are four primary sources of endangerment and abuse that ultimately cause Christians to flee. These threats are magnified in the case of those who have converted from other religions and particularly from Islam. The first source of danger is their own families, whether immediate or extended. The next is government officials, whether local or national. Another risk is their local community, sometimes including mob violence. And the fourth danger is violent religious groups. These factors are very much at work in the three countries identified, Iran, Nigeria, and Afghanistan. In May of this year, Radio Free Europe reported on the struggles faced by Iran's Christians, who may number as many as a million or more due to widespread conversion from Islam. The article cited the well-respected Christian support organization Article 18, whose most recent annual report cited more than 120 incidents of arrest, detention or imprisonment of Christian converts from Islam, who comprise Iran's largest Christian community. The report article It explains that one of the most striking trends in 2021 was the increased involvement of Iran's powerful Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in the crackdown of Persian-speaking Christians. The IRCG was responsible for 12 of the 38 documented incidents of arrest of Christians or raids on their homes or house churches in that year, noting the Iranian authorities increased focus on cracking down on evangelism online. Meanwhile, according to the same uh, organization, there were nearly three million displaced persons in northeast Nigeria in 2020. That number has no doubt swelled dramatically across the entire country due to surging anti-Christian Fulani violence in Nigerian's middle belt. And like many others who have visited Nigerian uh, victims of conscience, Baroness Cox describes the brutality of the Fulani assailants against Christians. During many of the attacks, Fulani militia are reported by survivors to have shouted, um, destroyed the infidels and wipe out the infidels. Armed with sophisticated weaponry, they destroy homes and churches. They seize property and land, which has resulted in mass displacement. The attacks are organized. They're systematic. All such findings are recorded in the 2022 report, or rather the 2020 report, Nigeria unfolding genocide by the all-party parliament group, for international freedom of religion of belief. Well, perhaps the most unexpected and shocking report on Christian persecution emerged from Afghanistan. 
Following the sudden U.S. troop withdrawals in August of last year, Charmaine Heading, president of the Shy Fund, explains the dangers there. She writes, she has assisted flying thousands of Afghans out of the country, including many from the underground church. Those Christians have been identified by the Taliban, and some had to be moved through eight different safe houses to avoid capture. All Christian converts that remain there are under threat, and we know that some 500 actively need immediate evacuation. The situation in Afghanistan continues to be dire for the underground church. Many are being hunted down by local Taliban, and their lives are in direct threat of execution for apostasy. According to Church on the Run, Iran, Nigeria, and Afghanistan are only three countries out of some 58 where religious identity is a primary factor in both persecution and permanent displacement. In our comfortable surroundings, as we read, discuss, and seek to help our persecuted Christian brothers and sisters, let's particularly pray for the homeless believers around the world. Most of them have little hope for resettlement. In fact, at least for now, Heaven is the only home they can believe in and may ever enjoy again. This is the portrait of the church. And while we struggle today in this country with the challenges we face with inflation, the costs of everything going up, the the cost of fuel, (sighs) challenges with receiving items from around the around the world, around the globe that we're used to having close at hand. We would do well to remember the 360 million Christians who face persecution today at this moment. They face displacement and homelessness globally. And perhaps we can stiffen our resolve just a bit. We can strengthen our commitment to praying for them as if we ourselves were being persecuted and to purpose to honor God in whatever challenge we might face that doesn't result in our being persecuted directly being displaced specifically or homeless in our own country. Remember the persecuted church. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Next uh, program, we're going to talk about missions, how to prepare for them. And yes, people are going back on the short-term mission field. We'll tell you more about that on tomorrow's program. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.